some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Solemn-faced people filed into the church ready to pay respects to Clarence Darrow, a man who had spent decades defending minorities, the underprivileged, and the oppressed. It was 1938. Men removed their hats in respect. Mourners whispered quietly about the dozens of Darrow cases that helped to shape the American legal system. Probably the least talked about was his final case, argued just six years before his death in the paradise of the Hawaiian Islands. Still more than 20 years from statehood, Hawaii was no stranger to America's brand of racism and discrimination. It's safe to say in hindsight that those issues are part of the reason Darrow's last case wouldn't help burnish his legacy. But he didn't seem to know that when he agreed to defend Grace Fortescue an East Coast socialite on trial for kidnapping and murder. The story begins not with Grace, but with her daughter, Talia Massey, who was born in 1911. Talia would have an interesting time scrolling through her Ancestry.com family tree, if that had been around. Her relatives included the first president of the National Geographic Society and Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone. Now, her father was born out of wedlock, but despite that inauspicious start to his life, he'd done well for himself overall. Granville Fortescue was a rough rider serving alongside his cousin, Theodore Roosevelt, in Cuba, and he later served in the Roosevelt administration before becoming a journalist and author. Those connections allowed Talia to be raised in an upper-class lifestyle, first in Washington, D.C., and later in Hawaii or at least Talia believed her family was upper class. Truth is, Grace and her husband lived far outside their means while allowing their three daughters to lead very privileged lives. By the time Talia was 16, she was a, quote, drawling, insipid, cigarette-smoking radical, end quote. That's according to a book about this case by David E. Stannard. A cousin recalled Talia enjoyed being, quote, extremely immodest in her actions in front of young men, end quote, while also being pretty much ignored by both parents. In fairness, though, she again was just 16. Plus, she did have a cultured side, too, which I base on the fact that her Italian sonnets tied for first place in a University of Hawaii undergraduate poetry contest. Anyway, in 1927, when Talia was just 16, she married Lieutenant Thomas Massey, an officer in the U.S. Navy who was six years older than she. The marriage was a rocky one, with reports of heavy drinking and public fights. Talia supposedly would randomly attack Thomas and grab his arm, biting him viciously. If both were drunk, neighbors would often end up calling the police to calm the dispute. 
Supposedly a few years into the marriage, Thomas had placed Talia on probation, dictating an informal set of conditions to rein in her behavior, and if she didn't oblige, he threatened to send her back home with her folks. In 1931, Thomas was transferred to the base at Pearl Harbor to join Submarine Squadron 4. Rather than living on the base, the Masseys moved into a house at 2850 Kahawai Street, roughly an 18-minute drive from Pearl Harbor. Obligatory disclaimer, I am sorry if I butcher these pronunciations. Talia, however, did not make a great impression amongst the officers' wives. Considering herself above the rest of them, at only 19, she didn't want to lower herself to mingle with them, especially those who weren't white. On September 12, 1931, Thomas and Talia attended a Navy event at the Alawai Inn, a nightclub in Waikiki. The facts of what happened that night, as we know them now, are the following. Talia hadn't wanted to go to the shindig that night. From the Femme Killers YouTube channel. Before the outing, Talia was already in a bad mood. The couple had been having issues, and one of them was Talia's anger. It was said that Thomas wanted to get a divorce due to it. Even though she really didn't want to go out, Talia still accompanied her husband to a Honolulu hotel with his military friends. Still annoyed she was there at all, Talia apparently had an argument with a Lieutenant Stogstall, and then she slapped someone, but it's not clear whether it was Stogstall or someone else. She stormed out of the club sometime between 11.30 p.m. and midnight, but Thomas didn't see any of this and apparently wasn't concerned when she just disappeared from the club. According to her later testimony, Talia said that after she left the club, she walked to Waikiki Park, a club nearby that was also holding a dance that night that ended around 11.55 p.m. The next time anyone saw Talia was between 12.20 and 12.45 a.m. on Sunday morning. A car carrying two couples who knew Talia picked her up along the Ala Moana Road. According to Stannard's book, Honor Killing, in 1931, this road was a, quote, narrow, unlighted, badly paved, and rarely used bypass, end quote. Not the six-lane road Hawaiians would recognize today. After Talia climbed into the car, she told the others that she had been assaulted and robbed, and she asked to just be taken home. In the dim light, the people in the car could see Talia's mouth was swollen and one of her cheeks was scuffed. When one of them asked if she wanted to be taken to the police station, she declined and said again, I just want to go home. It wasn't until Thomas got home and saw her that they finally went to the police. He immediately took her to the hospital. The test results confirmed that Talia had been beaten. Talia's initial statement was that she couldn't remember any details, that it was too dark to see any identifying characteristics. But several hours later, when she was interviewed again, she described her attackers as locals and gave the police a license plate number. Within hours, the police had a man in custody. This first arrest would lead to an incredibly high-profile trial, not just against the one man, but five in total, all men of color whom the press declared a marauding gang of brown-skinned rapists who had committed, quote, the most atrocious outrage ever experienced by a white woman, end quote. 
When jurors struggled to reach the verdict that Talia's family wanted, one of those men would end up dead, prompting an even higher-profile murder trial that brought the legendary lawyer Clarence Darrow out of retirement and featured an ending that haunted all of the players in the case for the rest of their lives. The man arrested first in Talia Massey's reported assault was Horace Ida. He was of Japanese descent and an American citizen living in Hawaii, which had for much of the 1800s been a sovereign kingdom. Many of the people on the island remembered the monarchy before the island became a U.S. territory, and some still weren't happy about the transition. When the flag of the Hawaiian people, the Hawaiian nation, came down, in 1898, there was an amazing wailing. This is historian Kenalu Young. It was Hawaiian people expressing in a Hawaiian way their disfavor for what has happened because they had done everything in their power not to become annexed, not to become a part of the United States of America. Ida, who went by Horace, but whose real name was Shimatsu, was 24 years old and had been living in California looking for work. His dad, mother, and sister had lived in Hawaii, though his dad died in 1929, and Ida had only recently come back to visit after steering clear for a couple of years. Now, you can't understand this case without setting the stage. Once Hawaii became a U.S. territory, there very much was an us-versus-them mentality. Not just based on skin color, but that certainly played a big role. In the 1800s, the then-kingdom saw a big influx of Japanese immigrants, people looking for work in Hawaii's sugarcane plantations. To show how embracing the territory was of these immigrants, here's one headline from 1900, two years after the annexation. Quote, the Japanese thugs, end quote. That's it. That's the whole headline. The bigger rift was between white people and people of color. Generally speaking, the Japanese immigrants and Native Hawaiians were not huge fans of the white people who'd annexed the island against the wishes of most, and the white people moving in looked down on the non-whites around them. In short, there was tension in paradise. It was already a beautiful escape this island city in the middle of the Pacific. 2,000 miles from the California coast, it was America, but with better weather. And it was run by white people, or haoles as the natives called them. On September 12, 1931, Horacida had gotten into a little scrape. This is the same night that Talia Massey would say she was assaulted. I had a scrape one like this. Around the time that Talia had departed the club in Waikiki, Ida had borrowed his sister's car to go to a luau with some of his friends. They called it a night around 12.30 a.m. and got in the car to go home. Driving through the city center, Horace nearly got into an accident with another car. The cars didn't actually touch, but both got angry and stepped out of the car to wave their arms around and scream. You know how it goes. One of Horace's friends, Joseph Kahahawi, a local boxer, allegedly punched the female occupant of the other car in the face. Then the woman, a Mrs. Peoples, punched him right back. 
Apparently, the shocking nature of all this broke up the scuffle rather than escalating it further, which is kind of amazing. Peoples left the scene and drove to the police station to report the incident. That prompted police to issue an APB, you know, all points bulletin, to keep an eye out for Ida's car and its occupants that night. Now, when the police learned soon after about the assault on Talia Massey, they made a pretty big leap and decided that the guys in the near wreck who punched that woman in the face must be the same guys who'd left Talia with a scuffed face too, which on its surface might seem fair. But police arrested the men and then did not charge them with assault. They charged them with rape. Talia had not initially told anyone she'd been sexually assaulted. Not her friends, not her husband, not the police in her first two statements to them. While that on its own doesn't discredit the claim, many on the island, and even on the police force, found it awfully convenient that it was only after the arrest that Talia began remembering things she hadn't recalled before. Some examples. Before the men were arrested, Talia referenced a group of men generically. After the arrest, she remembered they were locals. Before, she didn't mention anything about their car. After, she remembered their license plate almost perfectly. She was off in just one spot. Before, she offered no descriptions of what they were wearing. Afterward, she remembered one had a brown leather jacket. This is from a retrospective newscast from KHON-TV. Although she told police she could not identify her attackers when the suspects were paraded before her on several occasions, her memory improved. Anyway, once Talia's story evolved, the police force began to split into two camps, those who believed the arrest to be bogus and those who firmly believed that Horace and the other men in the car were guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The people who believed this believed fervently. Rear Admiral Yates Sterling Jr. was the commandant of the Navy's 14th Naval District, which included Hawaii, and he said his first inclination was to lynch all of the suspected assailants. All that stopped him were the rules and regulations because he had to give the local authorities a chance to carry out the laws of the land. How nice of him. Those in the guilty camp led the campaign to file charges of rape and assault against the five men, which left their colleagues in the not-guilty camp in a really tough spot. Because while that hospital examination had shown Talia had been beaten... They couldn't find any proof that she had been raped. The hospital staff relayed this to the police, but the police didn't seem to care about that detail. So the police found a group of Hawaiian men, even with no witness identification. The men, Henry Chang, Benny Ahakuelo, David Takai, Horace Ida, and Joseph Kahawahi, denied that they had anything to do with it. The not guilty camp struggled with another issue, too. The timing of the night just didn't seem to work. People's car had been hit on the other side of the island from where Talia reported being attacked, and the two incidents supposedly happened within a short time of each other. Not only that, but Talia's reported assault would have taken time. Once her story stayed steady, her allegation was that she had been forced into Ida's car, driven to the Ala Moana, which means path to the sea, and then assaulted between four and six times. On top of that, the dissenters noted that Talia had supposedly been with the police, as in within earshot of a police radio, 
When the APB went out for Ida's car, so some suspected that she'd heard the license plate on the police radio, then quote-unquote remembered it just afterward. Now, the politics of all of this were a mess. The guilty camp was very vocal and had enough high-ranking people convinced that charges were obviously filed. The not-guilty camp was uncomfortable with the case, but it was messy. I mean, if you can try to imagine the climate of the time, picture standing up to discredit not just a white woman, but the daughter of a seemingly well-off couple who was married to a military man in favor of a group of non-white men, one of whom had apparently slugged a woman earlier that very night. To their credit, the not-guilty camp went to the press saying, hey, these charges, they're trumped up. But that's all we can give them credit for, because instead of pointing out the legitimate problems with the case, they accused Talia of having an affair with one of the five men. They said that on the night in question, she had gone out to meet her lover, whichever one of the quintet that was, and found him drunk with four friends. From there, they posited that Talia began yelling at her lover, who replied with his fist. The scorned woman then screamed rape to get him in as much trouble as possible. Again, that's according to the skeptics. Others heard rumors that the person Talia was having an affair with was someone else entirely, a shipmate of her husband, in fact, and that Thomas had come home from the party to find Talia and this mysterious sailor in bed together. That theory suggested that it was Thomas who had assaulted his wife. Please note that all of these stories meant to refute Talia's story included attacks against Talia, with each assuming her infidelity would easily be believed by the entire island. This is where Grace Fortescue re-enters the picture, an Eastern socialite who lived in the rarefied air of New York and D.C., Grace came out as a debutante in 1902. She was known to be an accomplished golfer and horsewoman and an expert at bridge. Apparently, Grace was also known for both funny and dangerous pranks around the nation's capital, like stealing a trolley car and driving it all over town. You'll be shocked to learn she never got in trouble for any of those antics. After hearing of her daughter's assault, Grace arrived on Oahu in October of 1931 on the pretense of supporting Talia, but in reality, she at first seemed more interested in recreating her socialite lifestyle with country club lunches, hula lessons, and lawn bowling. If you don't know lawn bowling, chances are it's exactly what you pictured. Soon, Talia confided in her mother that she had not gotten her period in the weeks since her assault. Deeply concerned that Talia might be pregnant, Grace arranged for a preventative abortion at a local hospital. According to the medical report, Talia was not pregnant. But the report also documented Grace's treatment of the nursing and support staff. Over the two days Talia spent in the hospital, Grace discovered that some of the nursing staff were Asian or Hawaiian. After learning that, she stormed in to see the hospital administration and insisted that only white nurses be allowed into her daughter's room. For Grace, she didn't want any people of color to even enter the room, let alone offer her daughter any kind of treatment. Meanwhile, not all of the journalists covering the case accepted the prosecutor's theory as straight-up truth. The Honolulu Advertiser ran a story September 16, 1931, 
describing an unnamed 20-year-old victim signing a criminal complaint from her hospital that included three subheads. They read, Men claim frame-up at hands of police, maintain innocence, declare witnesses will substantiate their alibi. It was, in short, a weak case from the get-go. But because the process was speedier back then, it reached jurors in November. The trial lasted three weeks, and then the jury adjourned for deliberations. From the start, those talks were tense. One story read, quote, Deliberations were marked by a row between two jurors in the jury room, following which the defense asked the court to enter a mistrial on the grounds that force rather than reasoning was being resorted to in an effort to reach a verdict. This plea the court denied, end quote. The jury deliberated longer than any other jury in Oahu's history, but they never reached a consensus. The judge declared a mistrial, and the five accused men were released without prejudice, meaning that they could be charged again if more evidence was found. Now, it's hard to overstate how big this news was, especially in Hawaii. It ran as the -the above-the-fold front-page story on the Honolulu Star Bulletin with a bold double-decker headline, Mistrial in Ala Moana Assault Case. Jurors are out 97 hours. To many whites, both on and off the islands, the mistrial was a miscarriage of justice that released cutthroats on an unsuspecting white population. James F. Gilliland, the city and county attorney in charge of leveling the charges to begin with, told reporters that a retrial would hinge on new evidence being gathered. He called on Sheriff Patrick Gleason to, quote, assign the best men available in his department to work on the case, end quote. That's per the Honolulu Star Bulletin in December 1931. Gilliland also said he was upset that some police officers actually testified for the defense, and he recommended they be fired. In the meantime, the five accused men were free to go. To put it mildly, Talia Massey's mother and husband, Grayson Thomas, were not happy about the mistrial, and they were extra ticked off that the accused men were allowed their freedom. Thomas had supposedly learned that the big one, a.k.a. Joe Kahahawi, who I'm going to call Joe from now on, was ready to crack. Thomas and Grace agreed they should do something, so he recruited two fellow sailors from the base, Albert Jones and Edward Lord. The trio of sailors left Pearl Harbor around 3 in the afternoon, stopped at a YMCA to change out of their uniforms, and then met up with Grace. The foursome created a plan to lure Joe into a car by making it look like a police pickup. The warrant they planned to show him was a newspaper clipping with a seal that Thomas cut off a certificate he received from training at Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland. The four climbed into the car, with Grace directing them where to go. She said she had investigated Joe's movements and knew just where he would be and when he'd be there. Except she was wrong. He never showed. The disappointed group returned to the Massey house for the night and ate breakfast together the next morning. At the table, Jones gave Thomas his 32 automatic Colt, which he put with his own service weapon before the group got ready for a second attempt at their plan. Thomas drove his Buick, while Grace drove her Roadster. 
Lord and Jones got out to be the muscle on the street. Once Grace positively identified Joe, Jones began to follow him as Thomas pulled up alongside the curb. Jones showed Joe the fake summons and said that some general wanted to see him immediately. Having no reason to question this, Joe voluntarily got into the Buick and it took off down King Street. They then put him in a car and took him to Thomas and Talia's home. At the house, Thomas and the two men started torturing Joseph. He continued professing his innocence. Within a few minutes, the gang had all gathered in the kitchen, circled around Joe, who now recognized Thomas and Grace from the trial. Thomas aimed one of the guns at their captive and began the interrogation, asking variations of what do you know and what happened on September 12th. According to Thomas's own eventual testimony, Joe maintained his innocence, swearing that he was at a dance in Waikiki and didn't see Talia at all. Frustrated, Thomas and Grace agreed to escalate the plan. Sending Lord and Jones outside, Thomas threatened Joe, saying, quote, if you don't talk before those men get back in here, they will beat you to ribbons, end quote. Suddenly, according to Thomas, Joe spontaneously confessed. After getting the confession he'd been waiting for, Thomas said he went into a fugue state, telling his lawyer that he remembered nothing after the confession until he suddenly came to in a strange car on a country road. Here's what he conveniently had blacked out. 22-year-old Joseph Kahahavai Jr. had been shot to death. Massey also forgot that after the shooting, he and his three cohorts planned a trip to Cocoa Head, a remote area on the southeastern side of Oahu and far from Honolulu, to dump the body. They wrapped Joe's corpse in a bedsheet and put it into Grace's car. To avoid nosy drivers, they pulled down the shades on the inside of the car, because cars had curtains then. Those curtains ended up being their downfall. They were speeding toward the blowhole to dump his body in the ocean when police stopped their car. On their way to Cocoa Head, a Honolulu motorcycle police officer noticed the drawn curtains and thought that was suspicious. Joe's kidnapping had already been reported, so he'd heard about it on the radio. As soon as the officer approached the vehicle, the jig was up and the four were arrested on suspicion of murder, which was hard to argue since they literally had a dead body in their car. But the story has another twist. Enter here Clarence Darrow, otherwise known as... America's most famous criminal defense attorney... By 1932, Clarence Darrow had been retired for seven years. He had participated in some of the most famous trials of the 20th century, including working as Leopold and Loeb's defense lawyer, the one who spared them the death sentence, and as the lawyer who defended the teaching of evolution during the Scopes trial, which I'll cover in another episode here soon. A major opponent of the death penalty, Darrow often took cases where he could offer challenges to that sentencing. Impressively, only one of Darrow's murder cases through his entire career ended in an execution, and that was his very first. He had maintained a winning streak until his retirement, so it might seem surprising that he would risk that for this bummer of a case, but he did. I assume the price tag helped. Grace's friends had collected some $30,000, more than $660,000 in today's money. 
whatever convinced him, the bottom line is that he came out of retirement and flew to Hawaii to defend the four on trial for the murder of Joe Kahahawi. Darrow met with the defendants and ultimately decided on an honor-killing defense. His argument was that Grace, Thomas, and the two others were justified in their killing of Joe because of his obvious guilt and the miscarriage of justice perpetuated by the Hawaiian court system. Of course, this meant that Talia was portrayed as an innocent victim and that Thomas was a righteous husband protecting his wife. The court warned Darrow not to get too deep into the rape and assault case, as it was expected to be retried, but he was able to play on the jury's sympathies, sympathies carefully crafted by decades of anti-Asian and anti-Hawaiian racism. And it worked, not by getting the four acquitted, but by swaying the jury to convict them of a lesser charge. Rather than the murder conviction the state wanted, the jury returned a verdict of manslaughter for all four defendants. Darrow had succeeded in saving them from execution. The defendants instead were sentenced to 10 years in prison, a fact that was not normally met with beaming faces, and yet the press noticed all four were very happy at this news. But there's still one more twist. Grace Fortescue, Thomas Massey, and their two sailor accessories each were sentenced to 10 years in prison on manslaughter convictions, which had Islanders flummoxed to begin with. But before the four even started that sentence, word came on down from high to change everything. In Washington, Congress was outraged that four white people would go to prison for killing a native Hawaiian. So President Herbert Hoover ordered the territorial governor to free the killers. Reluctantly, Governor Lawrence Judd reduced their 10-year prison sentences to just one hour served sitting in his office at Iolani Palace. Seriously, one hour sitting in an authority figure's office on par with the punishment my kid might get for talking too loudly in the school library. Four days after the commutation, Grace, Talia, and Thomas, along with the Darrows, were on the ocean liner Malolo to travel to San Francisco. Talia was forced to sneak on board the vessel in the dead of the night because law enforcement were threatening to hold her on the island until the retrial of her case. She wanted to go home. She, along with her husband and mother, were now famous. Now, Hawaiian Governor Lawrence Judd wasn't having any cruise liner fun back in Honolulu. Very few people approved of the commutation, but Native Hawaiians were especially furious. One member of the royal family called Judd's action a travesty, suggesting that this proved there were two sets of laws in Hawaii, one for the favored few and one for everyone else. Attitudes were much different on the mainland, though. People criticized Judd for only commuting their sentences rather than giving them full pardons. Only offering a commutation left them branded as convicts, as one op-ed said. It only gets darker the more one looks at the commentary in this case. Editors of a small weekly circular, The New Republic, proposed an update to America's criminal code to bring the legal code in line with the (coughs) attitudes of the day. They suggested adding an amendment to criminal law as follows, quote, No white person shall be guilty of murder if he kills a member of another race, believing him guilty of a crime of violence against a member of the killer's family. 
end quote. Judd, still unpopular, decided to weigh in on the veracity of Talia's rape and assault case. In June 1932, the governor met with detectives from the Pinkerton's detective agency while in San Francisco. Judd asked a Mr. J.C. Frazier, the agency's California division manager, to investigate the events of September 12, 1931. As an impartial third party, the Pinkertons could provide an unbiased recounting of that night. Frazier and his team of detectives spent weeks in Hawaii investigating the various claims of the case before compiling and submitting their final report to Judd in October of 1932. The report clearly states that the agency found that the five men, quote, did not have the opportunity to commit the kidnapping and rape described by Mrs. Massey, end quote. Furthermore, they found that there had been no, quote, corroboration of the statements of Mrs. Massey that the alleged kidnapping and rape occurred at the times and places and with all the circumstances, nor has it been proved that they did not occur, end quote. Given the divisive atmosphere in Hawaii, it makes sense that Judd just wanted the case against the four remaining men to quietly go away. On February 13th, 1933, Attorney General Kelly quietly approached the bench and asked that the charges be dropped. And poof, they disappeared. The four surviving former suspects, who were now officially free men, did their best to fade into Oahu's population and most succeeded, apparently changing their names to distance themselves from the ordeal. Only one of the men, Ben Ahaquilo, broke his silence 35 years later when he told a reporter the case had caused him a lot of trouble ever since. His kids learned about it through classmates. He almost called off his own wedding to protect his wife from being associated with him. While none of the men lived to see it, justice was sort of served, just not until 2006. The American Bar Association held its annual convention at the Hawaii Convention Center, the former site of the Ala Inn, which, by the way, was where this all started. Anyway, the ABA decided to hold a mock trial, using the Massey case as their case study and basing some of their evidence on the post-trial Pinkerton case files. Duke Iona, the lieutenant governor of Hawaii served as the judge while the lawyers used documents from the original trial combined with modern forensic techniques. After hearing from expert testimony, a.k.a. other lawyers, the jury, also lawyers, unanimously found the five Hawaiian men not guilty. Their main probable cause was the timeline. There was no way the car with the five men could have been in the documented near accident and then reached Talia in the established time frame. So, 75 years later, on the same site where Talia Massey stormed out of a party setting a series of events in motion, five men were finally exonerated. Horacida, Ben Ahaquilo, David Takai, Henry Chang, and most of all, the man who was slain, Joe Kahahawi. Talia and Thomas went back east, stopping for a welcome in his hometown of Winchester, Kentucky. Everything seemed fine for the couple as a, quote, 50-piece high school band led a parade of more than 100 cars while many persons on foot carried torches, end quote. But after being feted in a few more towns, Thomas was transferred to San Diego while Talia headed to D.C. to move in with her grandmother. 
On February 23, 1934, Talia appeared before a Reno, Nevada judge to seek a divorce, one that she swore was Thomas's idea, but for which she cited extreme mental cruelty as her reason for wanting. Ten minutes later, she walked out of the room, no longer married to Lieutenant Thomas Massey. Neither Talia nor Thomas had happy endings after going their separate ways. Within weeks of the divorce, Talia attempted suicide on a ship off the coast of Italy. Once on shore, she was admitted to a mental health facility where she was diagnosed with lapsus melancholia and nervous vibrations. Over the next three decades, Talia was arrested several times for public drunkenness, drunken driving, and assaulting her pregnant landlord. She had a brief second marriage, but divorced and moved to Palm Beach to be near her mother Grace. On July 2, 1963, Talia was found dead in her bedroom. The coroner found a high level of barbiturates in her system and ruled her death a suicide. What exactly happened to her that night she had a scuffed face has always been a mystery. Thomas, meanwhile, bounced from naval station to station after his divorce from Talia. But he had embarrassed the Navy and brought a lot of unwanted attention, so his assignments were low-key. 1940 proved to be a turning point for Thomas. While aboard the USS Texas, he began to exhibit disturbing behavior. Sudden fits of rage, showing up for his duty shift unshaven, speaking incoherently. He was also waiting for special powers and carried an empty bottle that, as soon as he got the mixture right, would turn him into a superhero. The behavior continued on shore, and he was checked into the Norfolk Naval Hospital, where he was diagnosed with schizophrenia, with one doctor adding Thomas was actively psychotic. It was quickly determined that Thomas would be discharged from the Navy, with the Navy blaming the psychosis on an incident in the service. From 1940 to his death in 1987, Thomas lived in San Diego, subsisting on his Navy pension and money he earned with weapons manufacturers in the Bay Area. Of all the players in the story, it was Grace who thrived after her commutation. She returned to the mainland and joked with the press that she looked forward to her next visit to Hawaii, saying, The climate is the best in the world. When she hired an architect to design her new Palm Beach home, she insisted the home, quote, capture the glamorous flavor of Hawaii, end quote. And where her daughter and ex-son-in-law suffered and struggled, whether from trauma or guilt, we can't know for sure, Grace seemingly had no health issues. At 75, she learned how to water ski. At 87, on a trip to Acapulco, she went parasailing. She continued living life her way, meeting with friends, playing cards, seemingly without a care, until her death in 1979 at the age of 96. She's buried in Arlington National Cemetery. But let's end this story remembering the victim at its center, Joe Kahahawi. He'd been born in rural Maui on Christmas Day of 1909. His family moved to Oahu, settling in Honolulu. But before long, his parents divorced. He went to school, earning an athletic scholarship. But he dropped out once the Great Depression hit so he could help his family. He ran into trouble along the way and tallied a few assault allegations. But he was working hard, too. In addition to whatever jobs he could get, Joe enlisted in the Territorial National Guard and was a professional boxer. He was shot point-blank in the chest on January 8, 1932, 
and his death wasn't ignored. Hundreds of people turned out to pay their respects at his service, causing many to compare Joe's funeral to the 1917 funeral of Hawaii's last queen. By the time the casket was taken into the churchyard, newspapers estimated the mourners to be in the thousands. At the gravesite, Reverend Robert Ahuna called Joe, quote, the son of not only his parents, but of Hawaii and the Hawaiians, end quote. He continued, saying, I call upon the Lord to pass judgment on those who committed this crime. As the funeral ceremony ended, a soft rain started to fall, which to Hawaiian signifies tears of heaven, a sign that the gods are weeping with you. To research this story, Jennifer Erdman, assistant professor and chair of the history slash political science department of Notre Dame of Maryland University, read David E. Stannard's book, Honor Killing, Race, Rape, and Clarence Darrow's Spectacular Last Case. Then I did some more contemporary news coverage reading, plus some documentary watching, and merged my thoughts with her. I'll note that there's a PBS documentary on this case called The Island Murder, which was especially useful. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to ObsessedNetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 